I was an investigative reporter, we never told you how we did it. Now, here's how we did it, which is my way of saying, here's why you should believe us. Here's how many people we talked to. Here's even the documents we looked at. Here's the reporter. Here's everything. I think the more transparent we are, which seems easy and obvious, but boy, we sucked at it until like four or five years ago. The more transparent we are, I think people will believe us if they see how we do it and if we're relentless in showing them. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Interim Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. You're listening to Sal On Air, a collection of talks from the world's best writers from over 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. This conversation was recorded in March of 2019. Dean Bacay, the executive editor of the New York Times, and Jim Rainey, an award-winning reporter with the LA Times, spoke with hometown hero Timothy Egan about the importance of investigative journalism and the path forward for media in this political era. These veteran journalists discuss how investigative reporting has changed over time and what audiences expect and demand from the media today. They share challenges that reporters face when reporting from the field. We allowed ourselves to become mysterious, Dean Bacay says. As a result, people saw us as elites in an ivory tower. Jim Rainey agrees, adding, when we go out now, it's not just what we write, it's how we conduct ourselves, how empathetic we are, and so I think correctly, we have a lot to prove. These reflections set the tone for a lively conversation about transparency, credibility, and truth. With wit and honesty, they shine a spotlight on what the media can and should do better in an era of disinformation. They look to the future of newspapers from print journalism, here to stay, they insist, and paid content, to podcasts and interactive digital storytelling. They also discuss ways in which journalists, young and old, mentor each other today. This is Sal On Air. This is wonderful. We've got uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 people to talk about wow. journalism tonight, which is terrific. Um, I want to thank everyone here at SAL and Ruth and Rebecca and my friend Sam and Dean for coming all this way. What a great, wonderful thing to do that. And Jim on last minute notice showing up. Um, we're going to try to cover a huge range of topics in our short time and then we're going to take some questions from the audience. Not all of them are earth-shattering, but most of them are. Um, <laughs> Sam sucked up a lot of oxygen in the Dean storytelling, and he only, left, <laughs> he only left me about 20 seconds to tell my own personal Dean story, so I'll try to do it in that time, which is that we both got hired by the New York Times about 1990. Um, I went to the Metro desk in New York, and I was surrounded by Ivy Leaguers. Princeton, Harvard, Yale, some of them even wearing bow ties at all hours. <laughs> and um, I met Dean, I was from the University of Washington, a proud dog, and um, <laughs> seven years of college, and, um, <laughs> and they, I was from, as they still say, out west. And I met Dean, and he was the rarest of New York Times creatures. He was a college dropout. And, you know, sure, he was a dropout from Columbia, 
after three years of studying there, but I instantly liked him because I think we both had a chip on our shoulder somewhat about being one of the other Ivies. Uh, Jim, I've just met tonight, so I can't say anything good about him, Um, (laughs) but I hope at the end of the evening I will. So let's get to it, gentlemen. I'm gonna give you both, um, oh, one more thing I just wanna make clear to the audience. I still write a column for the New York Times every other week, but I don't work for Dean. He's on the news side. I'm on the opinion side. Uh, I could tell Dean to go tie his ears to his shoes right now and he couldn't touch me. That's true. So we, are, we have separation of church and state on opinion and news side. Um, I'm gonna give you guys a, somewhat of an easy opening question here. I want to hear what your daily news diet is like. What, what do you consume every day as you go into your working day? What do you read, what do you consume? And how has that changed recently over the years? <clears throat> Shall I go? You better go. Um, <laughs> It's changed dramatically. I mean, when I when I was when I started in the newspaper business, you know, you you literally. I remember being a reporter in Washington, and you would read the Post, you would read the New York Times, you'd read the Journal, um, and you would sort of read them in print, cover to cover. And now, I read the New York Times on the phone and the Washington Post on the phone before I go to bed. Um, I wake up in the morning, and I read in print. I'm still of that generation. And then I sort of scurry through a lot of websites that didn't exist when I started, right? I have a look at at BuzzFeed to see if they've done anything interesting. I look at The Guardian to see if they've Mm -hmm. done anything interesting, particularly internationally, which obviously you couldn't have done when I started. Um, You know, you, you, you now get, if you sign up for them, tons of newsletters. And a lot of newsletters, whether it's you know, Mike Allen's newsletter and other new political newsletters that sort of drive your day, they're almost like a collection of, of little newspapers. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of how you start the day. And the, the one thing <clears throat> that I will add that's hugely different in the, in the era we're in is you don't, I just describe sort of a morning, but actually you do this through the day. Right. I mean, the, new, the, news, the news does not, it's no longer the scheduled, my morning read, my night read. You read and watch throughout the day. And you, you know, we, in the newsroom now, we have these large television screens and we keep the networks on. Um, and you just have to keep on track of stuff throughout the day. Jim? Uh, so I'm at NBC News and uh, I work for the, web, uh, the national website for NBC. And... I tend to be, we're all, you know, on our phones all the time now. I'm totally driven by the news feed that comes over, frankly, on Twitter and on Facebook. I get the New York Times on Sunday. I get the LA Times in print uh, at home. And, but really, I'm probably like a lot of consumers now, and maybe not always to the good, I rely on my social networks to feed me a lot of stuff. So sometimes I'm reading the New Yorker, which I do get, luckily, in print, but sometimes I'm reading a 6,000-word profile in The New Yorker, but I'm reading it on my phone because somebody who's a Facebook friend linked to it. So it's kind of a crazy world compared to, we started at roughly the same Mm -hmm. time when everything was wake up, read the paper, and then because I'm at NBC, we've got uh, MSNBC on all day long, and you know, we've got the nightly news comes on, so I get a fair amount of that at work. I used to, the, only, the one thing that's changed for me in the last year, I use social media a lot less. Yeah. Um, 
And I don't know whether that's healthy or not, but I found it. You mean, when you say use, do you mean consume social media? Yeah, a lot I don't, less. I don't, right. I rarely look at Twitter. I don't right. tweet. I used to be active on Facebook. I'm not at all anymore. I find it, um, to be frank, I find it dominating, dominated by the same voices, and I find some of it toxic. Mm -hmm. um, and to be frank, I have the. <laughs> I have, the, I have the luxury of, of having a newsroom where other, I mean, I can, I can luxuriously say I don't tweet because I have a newsroom of 1,600 people and probably 1,599 of mm -hmm. them tweet. Now, so I, 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 I can well, sort of get away that, with that. That goes to the question I was going to ask later on, but let me just jump into it. Do you think journalists should tweet? Do you encourage your... Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Because a lot of opinion, you know, leeches into tweets. It's just yeah. almost inevitable. I think we should be, and this is controversial in my newsroom, I don't think journalists, on my side of the house, the news side of the house, I don't think journalists should tweet their opinions. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they should tweet anything they could not say in, their, in the news pages of the, of the Times. But... But you could tweet about avocado toast or something. Yes, right? of right. course. Yeah. Yes. Okay. yes. Yes. <laughs> but I think, I think that you should be connected to the readers. I think you should be in touch with the readers. I think you should, you know, you should be, you should be in and of the world. So I want reporters right. to do it. I, I think it's a little bit less important that I do it. A lot of people would disagree with that. I want them to tweet. I want, I think there have got to be rules, which sometimes makes them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But um, but no, I want them to be in the Twitter's world. gotten an awful lot of people in trouble. Though. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Including people in my newsroom. Right. Yeah. So um, to switch subjects, because our time is limited, to go to one of the, one of the elephants in the room here, I want to quote the, the late Russell Baker, great New York Times columnist who just died a few months ago. Um, he talked about a particularly bad period in his life when he was covering, covering Washington, D.C. And he described Washington, D.C. reporting as this way, it's just waiting for someone to come out and lie to you. <laughs> and so maybe things haven't changed. Things are so different. Now. I was just going to say. That's, <laughs> We're in a completely different era. You're stepping on my transition, Dean. <laughs> that's my transition, dude. <laughs> okay? So I was going to say, I mean for all the lies of the Trump era, maybe things aren't that different. So I want to get into this. The Trump era presents both of you on this stage with real challenges as a journalist. One of them is whether to call the President of the United States a, quote, liar in the body of a news story or in a headline. Dean, you said in 2018, according to one reporter, that you sh we shouldn't use that word very much because it would lose its impact. Yeah. Can you guys address this? Do you want to go first? Yeah, um, I, I think Dean, well, I'll let Dean speak for himself. I, if Marty were here, uh, I think well, you, you want to pretend like you're Marty right now. Uh, <laughs> so you all know that uh, Dean and Marty have a few differences. I'm going to try and and I worked with both of them at the LA Times, both <clears throat> terrific journalists to work with. And one of the things uh, that Dean and Marty have had some fun about is the Washington Post. Probably have a lot of readers here. You know their new expression of the last couple of years is "democracy dies in darkness." Uh, so I, I told Dean that throughout the evening I was going to hit him with a little democracy. <laughs> <laughs> he, he made fun of Marty and said that that was too much like superhero talk. And I said it, so, sound, it sounded like the latest Batman movie. It does. So, democracy. Um, I threatened Dean I would do that all night long. But uh, yeah, I think it's the most disturbing thing to me and the most difficult thing about working <clears throat> in this era is that really uh, hearing that we're enemies of the people is just 
you know, not very pleasant. And I, I just work with people who are so committed to trying to tell the truth, to trying to tell a good story. Uh, I've been to Iraq to cover the war there with people who I didn't personally uh, risk, feel like I was risking my life, but I certainly was with colleagues, and including a lot of Iraqis who risked their lives so that Americans would know what was really happening there. And so to have the leader of our country, the leader of the free world, kind of with a broad brush, sort of condemning, not sort of, condemning all of us in this way. And we can get into this more, but he's someone who certainly has used the press to his advantage over many, many years. And it really just is so wrong and so <laughs> unfair, inappropriate. Uh, it's but, just, but I'm sorry to interrupt. Would, yeah. would you, as an NBC reporter, if you knew it for a fact, call him a liar in our news report? Getting back to the question. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I, you know, I'm going to channel Marty. I think what Marty would say, and I kind of agree with him, and I think Dean has a little different opinion. Yeah. I don't think it's necessary, necessary in most instances to call him a liar. I think that suggests that you know his state of mind and that when he says these things, for instance, when he repeatedly says uh, that the last president in the United States uh, was not born in this country, which, do you need to call it a lie? It was clearly an untruth, whether he was repeating it knowing it was incorrect or he's ignorant. It's, it was patently obvious. To call him a liar, I think the New York Times eventually did say that that yeah. was a lie, probably yeah. appropriately. So I don't think it's as important to call him a liar as it is to fact-check him and to make it clear, which has happened, as we know, by the Washington Post count thousands of times when he says things that aren't true. It's more important to say it's untrue, to say whether he lied, what, what his state of mind is. I don't want to get inside his mind. I don't think <laughs> we need to get inside his mind. But clearly, there are a lot of untruths uh, coming out of the White House and out of this president's mouth, and it's unfortunate. So yeah. as long as we say it's untrue, whether it's a lie, <clears throat> to me, it's I, not important. I thought, <clears throat> I thought it was important to use the word lie. Um, we used it. Um, <clears throat> We, we used it, and, I, 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 and, and I'll tell you why we don't use it all the time. We used it in a case in which I think it was cl just clear. There wasn't a debate over the scale of it. And what it was was, even before he ran for president, Donald Trump said, not only did he say he didn't believe Barack Obama was born in the United States, he actually said he'd hired private detectives, and they were finding interesting things. And then at the height of his candidacy, after he won the nomination, he suddenly said, okay, I accept he was born in the <laughs> United States. I, I just think that that's clearly was a lie. It meant that he, was, he did not hire private detectives, they'd not found anything interesting, and he had perpetuated an important lie. I thought in that case, we did it in the headline, we did it on the front page. I ch I've done it once or twice otherwise. The reason I don't want to use it a lot is because most people don't even remember the story where we use the word lie. Mm -hmm. and, and what I don't want is for every time we use the word lie, for everybody to get excited and say, the New York Times used the word lie and forget what the story was about. Mm -hmm. That's why I think it should be used rarely. Um, but I thought in that case, to not use the word lie felt like we were treating it like a normal politician's obfuscation. And all politicians that I've covered sort of obfuscate, bullshit, talk around things. I thought this was so extraordinary mm -hmm. that it required an extraordinary measure. 
and, and let me just speak for Marty. Um, he said, <laughs> we're all speaking. <laughs> he said, on this question, he said, unless we know for sure that the liar knows he's telling a lie, mm-hmm. it's kind of what you said, Jim, we can't yep. call him a liar. That said, the Washington Post keeps a running tally of yeah. lies, misstatements, <clears throat> and falsehoods. As of today, it's up to 9,000. Right. And um, in a single speech, they said over the weekend, uh, the President of the United States told more than 100 lies, yeah. falsehoods, or misstatements. So they do keep a tally of it. Now, um, a He's rela- on a roll. Um, yeah. <laughs> a related question on this thing. There was a great piece in The New Yorker recently by Jill Lepore, and she said, quote, the Trump administration has put a lot of people including reporters and editors, off their stride. The present crisis, which is nothing less than a derangement of American life, has caused many people in journalism to make decisions they regret or might yet regret. Gentlemen, any regrets? Um, she ha- he has thrown us off our stride. I think that's right. I think that we had, um, I think we had a, you know, there is a narrative to covering a president. Um, and and it's, you, you have to have it. Remember, newspapers come out seven days a week, and, and you know, even the best, even the finest literature has a narrative. And you, you sort of develop a narrative around a president. The narrative includes if the president gets up at a press conference and says, I'm going to sign an executive order tomorrow, you say, okay, he's going to sign an executive order tomorrow. Mm-hmm. If the president says... I just met with a world leader and he said X. You sort of say, okay, I, I buy that. <laughs> um, he, th- this, this president has not always done those things that he said. Um, he, he happened to arrive on the scene at a moment when, when the sort of digital life of journalism was fully flowered. So he had an ability to reach his own audience directly. And I think he has thrown us off our stride. Do I have regrets? Um, of course, there are things that I wish I'd done differently. I think we could have done a better job understanding the state of the country that elected Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I, 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 if, I, if I had that as a do-over, I would do it. That, and that was, the, the president has mentioned that. Yeah. He, and what he said about that is that the New York Times apologized. Which we, we, did, we didn't. Of course we didn't. Right. <laughs> it's another on the tone. 9,001. Right. Um, Look, I, think, no, I don't think any, anybody quite understood how much turmoil the country was in, how much anxiety there was in the country, how much of a hangover there was over the financial crisis, how much people were angry with government for bailing out some and not bailing out others. I think, by the way, the rise of Bernie Sanders was part of, the, part of that. Mm-hmm. That was a hint. The fact that, a, that a, a guy who describes himself as a socialist, who you know, is, is an older man from a tiny state, ended up threatening, threatening the anointed Democrat, and the fact that Donald Trump arose. If you add those things up, the country was saying something, and I'm, I don't think the press quite was listening. I don't think we got it because we, you know, we played, atten- paid attention to our old narratives. Hillary Clinton was the anointed candidate. It's false that we didn't aggressively investigate Donald Trump. I mean, I edited some of those stories myself. We wrote, we wrote the first stories about the way he treats women. We did extensive looks at his, at his finances. But I don't think we quite understood the mood of the country. 
So if I had to do that right. over again, I would. Jim, you yeah. covered the media. Yeah. And um, did, do you think there's a similar sort of sense of regret, or do you think there is a sense of regret, forget about similar, Yeah. Uh, with all other press outlets? I mean... Yeah, I think there is. I mean, I think we absolutely, and still, let's be honest, if you work, I've worked at the LA Times and NBC News now, and a couple other places, uh, and most of the people in the room are from very similar worlds still. And I kind of wonder, I mean, Dean maybe could speak to this, that we, you know, a lot of us are from the coast. I went to school at Berkeley, God forbid. Um, you know, uh, Columbia, uh, my kids go to those kind of schools. And I do think we have a deficit of people in our business. I think almost we need an affirmative action that's maybe class-based and geographically based. We, we're trying to do a little bit better job. Um, in terms of representing people of, of different ethnicities and races, and certainly women have, you know, progressed a lot in the time I've been in the business. But I really do feel like we're still, we still have a blind spot to certain kinds of people, and there, a lot of those people are uh, people who voted for President Trump, for then-candidate Trump. And so, yeah, I think there were regrets then, and I think, you know, we need to be careful this go-around because a lot of the talking heads, and I'll put myself in that category, I assured people that, oh, this guy can't really win, because Hillary's gonna win. This, uh, you know, and the country spoke, and, and you know, he's the president, and I think he could well be reelected too, so. Uh, <laughs> um, Democracy. Okay. You know, too, um, if, I, if I can tell Mara you. told you, every yeah. 10 minutes. Right. Um, if I can, so two, 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 so I grew up in a, in a Catholic neighborhood and went to Catholic grammar schools and Catholic high schools. And a few weeks ago, my high school honored me. So I went to an event in Atlanta um, and the, a group of us sat down together at dinner before. These are guys I had not seen since high school. And I picked up my fork and was about to dig in. And one of the guys looked at me horrified and said, we say a prayer first. And I put the fork down, and I thought, oh my God, this, this is the way I grew up. But I forgot. I've lived in half a dozen cities since then. I think we, I think we need to make sure that we... Under, and I don't think those guys are, you know, unusual. I think that's America. And I think we have to get better at understanding that America. And, and I think that... that we didn't quite have a handle on that America before have this election. Have you done anything going into the 2020 yeah. campaign to ensure that you yeah. could do we've that? Moved, we first off, we did do, I mean, I, we went out intentionally and hired some people who had served in the military, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that used to be easy, but now it's hard to find people who are journalists who've served in the military. We did that. That's a different perspective. We moved a reporter to Pittsburgh, um, and, we, and we're trying, we, we've added a reporter to write about religion, who writes about religion in a country in a rich way. And we need to do more over the next couple of years and move more people out in the country. And I think that's, being out there is the only way we're going to get mm -hmm. that. And I think we, that's, that, that's the do-over I wish I could right. do. Hmm. Yeah. And do I think when you're out there in the country now, you have to be ready when you're a reporter uh, who goes out to these places to talk to people who've been told that you are an enemy of the people and That's that right. you're not going to care about them. And so I feel like we all feel like we're a little bit on trial when we go out now. Mm -hmm. That we're, It's not just what we write, it's how we conduct ourselves, you know, how empathetic we are. And so uh, I think correctly, like, we 
have a lot to prove. Um, some of it's unfair. I think the president's gone overboard, obviously, in attacking the press, but some of it's justified. You know, we are, a lot of us are from the coastal elites, and we were a little out of touch with the mm -hmm. people who may decide the election. So, so, sort of related question to this overall theme of derangement that, you know, that we're sort of off our game, we've had to rethink our things. There's a, there's a criticism from the other side that the press, the New York Times in particular, is now trying to be too, too woke. That <laughs> um, among millennials, there's a feeling that you know we should take a side. This is a historic moment in the democracy, and we yeah. really so so even I've heard people say even the sports page is woke yeah. now, which it probably is. It's doing stories it didn't do. Yeah, uh, Dean, I'm going to send this squarely in your lap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is like a a um, what I always one of the trickiest management tasks in my newsroom is there are in fact, there are multiple generations, but for, this, for to simplify the argument, let me say there are two. Um, and this has happened before. In the 1960s, if you read the history of American newspapers, Abe Rosenthal, my successor many times ago, woke up to a newsroom of people who thought Vietnam was terrible and mm -hmm. wanted to say it, who thought that that the civil rights movement was something they wanted to participate in personally. So this has happened before. The difference now, the profound difference, is because journalism and the way we distribute journalism has changed. It, it used to be those kids, if you will, came into newsrooms and you could say to them, be patient, you know, I was like this when I was your age. Here's what's different. They know stuff I don't know how to do. They, they grew up in a world where news was distributed on the phone. They think about stories differently. They see the world differently. I need them. I need their brains. I need, I need their worldview. I need their comfort with, with, the, with the phone. I grew up in print. That's still part of who I am. So I got to figure out a way to make them, I have to figure out a way to not be arrogant and to learn, the, learn from them, because I think they have things to teach me. Um, and I have to un make them understand that we have things to teach them. But I also have to have them understand that there's certain core principles that won't change. There's a lot we should change, and I would be a, a moron if I said, be like me. Mm -hmm. um, but, there are some core principles. One of the core principles is we're independent. One of the core, the, another core principle is we, we, we have independence from the opinion side of the house, and we believe in that. I think it gives us more power. I think it gives us more authority. We did a series of stories um, a, a, a few months ago about Donald Trump's finances that essentially proved that he and his father committed financial fraud. Right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> If that story... I, I, Radically changed the narrative. That's right. The, the foundation narrative of the that's Trump right. family. That's right. If that story had been published in a news organization, no matter how respected, that was seen as a purely left-leaning left news organization, it wouldn't have been taken as seriously. Mm -hmm. And, and I, think that, I think that's why I have to hold on to the independence. I need people from all, all parts of the political debate to read us and to believe us. And the only way I can do that 
is by telling some of the, these wonderful young journalists who I need that there's some things they need to learn from me, and that's one mm. of them. So. Jim, you have any thoughts on the woke? <laughs> uh, there is this... Uh, You're one of those young journalists. Right. I'm so young, yeah. Um, there is this expression, the view from nowhere, that's used very derisively by kind of the new, a new crop of journalists, that you should be fully out there with where your point of view is coming from. And I think the problem with that is then you quickly go down a rabbit hole where people want to talk about your politics instead of what you're reporting. Uh, there's a guy who's, I think, on, is he on CNN? Hugh Hewitt, who you may be familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wrote something a few years ago about a blogger who happened to be a good friend of his, and he invited me on his radio show. And he spent the first 10 minutes of the interview trying to find out if I was a gun owner. I surprised him by saying, yes, I owned a few guns. Uh, my political party, I don't, I'm not a member of a political... He wanted to rabbit hole me so that he could then discount what I was reporting. And I, I just think we really need to avoid, our stories should speak for themselves. I don't need to have my, I was a columnist for a while and then you, you have to inject yourself into it. But otherwise, right. I'm, I'm with the old guy here, the old gray, <laughs> one, the old gray fellow. One more, one more quick story on the president and then we're gonna move on to a bunch of other topics. Dean, you told um, my favorite interviewer, Stephen Colbert, <laughs> that um, that uh, Trump, this is in 2018, Trump, he asked you if the president had ever called you. You said, yes, Trump called you once, yeah. and he hasn't called you since. Right. Has he called you since? No. Once. Jim, has he called you? He hasn't called me, and I, I wrote down the name here because uh, the president in the 1970s and 80s, you folks have probably read, used to call reporters under the name John Miller, do you know this? Right. He used to call, he used to call as his publicist, so he does, right. I won't go too deep okay. into that, but the president likes to deal with the press right. and he likes to have his way and sometimes he calls his other people to try and get his message Dean, you have somewhat of a hands-off policy on talking to the president, don't I you? Won't, I, I don't think that, um, and I, this, is, this has nothing to do with Donald Trump, I don't think the executive editor should have off-the-record conversations with powerful people. Um, so, so for instance, because that's just power speaking to power without yes. no benefit to the reader. Yes, or and right. no benefit. It, it, when I was a reporter, that made me nuts. Even when I was a Washington bureau chief, I was a Washington bureau chief for most of the Barack Obama era. I never met Barack Obama because he wanted bureau chiefs and columnists to come to the White House to talk off the record. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to know stuff that the readers can't know. I also don't want to be, especially, especially in my current job, I mean, look, I, I, I get that executive editor of the New York Times is a powerful position. I don't want to be in the world of like rubbing mm. elbows with pow powerful people. I think I don't want to do that. You can see one of, <clears throat> sorry, I'm sorry to be personal, you can see one of many reasons why I liked Dean back when I met him in 1990. <laughs> he hasn't changed much. So. I've been really fascinated um, how the New York Times in the last, well, under your editorship, I'm not sure when it started, has been going back in history and running obituaries yeah. of people who were forgotten. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
they may have been overlooked because of race. They may have been overlooked because yeah. their achievement didn't fit the context of the times. Yeah. They may have been overlooked because they weren't powerful and poor. They may have been overlooked because they were gay and there was a mark against yeah. them. Whatever. But it's really interesting to me, to, as someone who loves yeah. history, to read these things yeah. now. My question is not to give you, uh, you know, praise on that, which although I do, it's to have you thought of stories that you've missed. I mean, the New York Times famously missed the Holocaust, yeah. but so did everyone else. Yeah. You know, the Gene Roberts, who was the managing editor of the New York Times when I was national editor, when you, he, he, I, he, he said something profound in an interview. He was asked, what's the biggest story the American press missed? And he said, the American press missed the story of the migration of black people from the South to the North which is probably one of the most profound moments in American right. history. They missed it because there was nobody in newsrooms who had relatives who were migrating. Mm. I, think they're, I think that's a huge story we missed. Um, I think that, um, you know, we used the example of the Holocaust. I think we miss, and we're better at it. I, I, I should say one thing. Journalism is significantly better than it's ever been. I, I honestly believe. Um, there, are some, there are some giant holes which we should talk about. I think local journalism is in crisis. But I think the combination of a little bit of humility, the fact that we, we now question ourselves, the fact that you can question us um, and push, push back at us, mm -hmm. I think all of those things, the fact that you have so many choices, the fact that you can read... You can decide, I mean, I grew up in New Orleans, I had access to two newspapers and three television stations. That same kid growing up in New Orleans could decide to read The Guardian, Der Spiegel, if he speaks German, any, anything he wants to. And I think that has made us humbler and better. Do you see, Jim, similar, a similar reappraisal, you've covered media, do you see a similar reappraisal of things we missed? Um, I. I think one story, I'm just going to, I hate to hop completely on the love train for the New York Times, but um, it's, okay. I want, it's, a good, I, it's a good train. It's a good train to be on. It's good. Um, I'm not begging for a job or anything. Uh, but I got to say, we were talking backstage, and I think something as big or bigger than the coverage of Donald Trump has been this Me Too story that um, was broken by the New York Times. Um, so I took a unfortunate little sojourn. I left the LA Times four years ago. I went to Variety Trade publication covering Hollywood. Uh, I'll tell now that my editor never revealed in public. My editor said, Harvey Weinstein, figure it out. He's a sexual harasser. Everybody in Hollywood knew. I went after it for several months and I didn't do what the women at the, LA, uh, at the New York Times did and break that story. And actually, interestingly, I, I went to my editor and said, I think we might need a woman to be involved in this because I'm just some white dude uh, calling, saying, you know, tell me about one of the most horrible things that ever happened to you. And we called some of the women who eventually came out. And, and I just want to, in terms of stories that was missed, that story, not just in Hollywood, but in society, was missed for, what, a few Right. Millennia. Yeah, uh, and actually, Dean. And so, right. um, <laughs> we're going to get to Dean later. I'm sure there's right. some weak spots, that, uh, but the, I, I think that's a major achievement. Yeah. It may be more important well, than I, the word I wanted to ask done. Dean real quickly. Yeah. 
it, Me Too has clearly, on any objective analysis, been a cultural mo- cultural yeah. shift. I wouldn't call it a cultural moment. I call it a tectonic shift. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that and what it's like to see that thing develop out of a newsroom? You know, it's funny. We, we did. We. I, I had no idea it was going to have this impact. We had done a story. I had assigned a story. Um, when I was at the LA Times, I recalled there was a case. It also shows how much society was more open. Where a where a woman had accused Bill O'Reilly of sexual harassment, and he went after her on the air. And, and no, nothing came of it. And, I, and years later, um, after some of the Roger Ailes stuff, I thought, I, I would love to get to go f- dig into that case again. So I signed um, uh, two reporters, um, Emily Steele and Mike Schmidt, to go back at that case, and they broke it. They came back, and that led to, to Bill O'Reilly being pushed out. So. I, I then, we then called in all the other reporters and I said, if he was this blatant, are we on to something larger? So Harvey Weinstein's name came up within like two seconds. Hmm. <laughs> um, and they dug and dug and, and I did not think the story was going to quite have the impact that it had. I thought it was a great story. I was excited about it. Um, and I, and I, but I, I, I was... We had an argument in the middle of the story in which I was wrong. I told the report, we knew the New Yorker was working on a similar story. So the reporters believed they needed some movie stars in the story. I thought, no, we don't need movie stars. Let's like just do the story. And just before we were supposed to publish, um, Jody Cantor, one of the reporters, came into my office, as I recall it, and said, Ashley Judd had just agreed to go on the record. And that, that transformed the story. And what I didn't understand was that readers saw movie stars in the story, and they thought they, they, they were more likely to believe it. And the movie stars themselves had some power. They could relate to them. And I think that's one reason the early stories had so much impact. And to me, I, thought it, I thought it was a really good story. I did not think we were starting... So now there's trickle-down Me Tooism. You see it at the factory yeah. floor. Yeah. Yes. In fact, yeah. we, one of the stories we did after doing Harvey Weinstein and others, a couple of reporters came in and said, we do not want this to look like a phenomenon that just affects wealthy movie stars. Yeah. So okay. we actually went and focused on a couple of um, factory floors, right. um, auto plants in the Midwest. And it was, of course, it was worse, right? It was mm-hmm. like you know, repeated, it was just, it was awful stuff. And, um, I, but I, I, I did not expect it to be. And that's in a case where everybody in America could tell you an example. No, that's It right. was the great whispered thing of the United <clears throat> States culture, and yet it didn't make its way into newsrooms. And it's, pro- and it, and it, and it's shocking once we got into it. It is one of those stories, as, as Jim said, that it's shocking that it went on for so long right. and nobody wrote about it. So I'm going to let the audience know if you've got questions in your program, there should be um, a little pull out there where you can uh, ask your questions and hand them to the side, and we'll save some time here shortly to ask some of these audience questions. It's time to uh, beat up on Dean, actually, yeah. a little bit. Come can, on. can we beat up on um, Jim? On no, Jim? We'll, we'll get around to Jim beating up. First, we're going to beat up on Dean. Okay. Uh, this comes from the Columbia Journalism Review that we're talking about. Um, coverage of Hillary Clinton's emails yeah. uh, in the last campaign. <laughs> and um, they said that the New York Times, let me make sure I get this right here, <laughs> spent, um, here it is. In just six days, the New York Times 
ran as many cover stories about Hillary Clinton's emails, six days, as they did about all the policy issues combined in the 69 days leading up to the election. Uh, comment on that? Yeah. Or an apology, just an apology. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. Probably I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, Dean. I set that this up is a little. The, right, right. On, on bended right. knee. Right. Like, it's, it's not like you haven't heard this. Yeah. No, this is the point in the program whenever I've done this where people get mad at me, but I don't think we overdid the story of her emails. <laughs> you know, at least you know enough to tell people they're going to get mad at you. I mean, you have to remember two things. First off, we had done a tremendous amount of investigative reporting about Donald Trump. Secondly, the Justice Department, under Jim Comey, who everybody now loves, um, <laughs> was conducting a serious investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails. And in fact, I will point out, by the way, that the first stories about what was contained in the emails, we, we didn't write about it early on. I was a little reluctant. Um, but everybody, there were, there were revealing things in her emails. Her emails showed, for instance, um, just how the, the speeches she gave to corporate clients, to big companies that wanted to hear her speak, that's newsworthy. They showed turmoil in the campaign, that's newsworthy. It's easy to sort of rewrite that history and not remember that stuff, but those emails were newsworthy. And there was a criminal investigation into her emails, and I don't know how we could ignore that. Well, the criticism was not that it wasn't a story. Yeah. The criticism was that the New York Times was excessive in its coverage of it, and it gave, you know... <clears throat> no, I understand, I understand that, and I, but, I, but I honestly, I've looked back at it, and... I, I think I have a track record for owning up to it when, when we get it wrong. I think, that it, I think you have to put your head back into the moment. We didn't know what Comey was going to find. We didn't know what, and he, in fact, it was a harsh, harsh criticism of her. I mean, he said that this was, I mean, he, he went after her. So I think in the moment, I actually don't regret that coverage. Mm -hmm. And I know that that makes a lot of our readers unhappy, but I've looked back at it and I don't regret that coverage. Jim, um, you covered the press, including you once covered the Los Angeles Times when Dean was the editor. Uh, here's your chance to give us a fair and balanced view <laughs> of uh, how yeah. the New York Times covered Hillary Clinton's emails. Yeah, you know what? Um, one thing that I wanna say that the press, I think, does a really bad job, and a lot of you probably watch, you know, I'm at NBC, MSNBC, CNN, Fox, um, I think the thing that the panelists never do on those shows is say they don't know. And I honestly don't know. I, I mean, I hate to punt, but I honestly don't okay, know we'll about Hillary's <laughs> emails. And I think the thing that a lot of you have problems with is that the timing of this coming as it did, not the coverage, but a lot of the revelations late in the campaign. And it, it just seemed to completely distract from a lot of other things. That's sort of politics. Maybe that's another story. but. I don't have an up-close view of what the New York Times did, and I'm really not punting because I'm mm -hmm. scared of Dean. I'm not scared of him anymore, but um, I'm going I'm to punt on that okay. one. Let's talk about Facebook for a second. Uh, Pew in 2018 found that 43% of Americans reported getting some of their news through Facebook. This at a time when there were that, that inflammatory emails from Russian bots or from Russian agents themselves, reached 143 million Americans. 
uh, I'm gonna sort of bias by asking this question, but how much of a threat is Facebook? I guess I should say, is Facebook a threat, but how much of a threat is Facebook? I, I don't, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm not convinced that Facebook per se is a threat. Um, I think that, I think that um, people have used Facebook for evil purposes, obviously, including, including mm -hmm. the, the election. I, you know, it's, it's hard. On the other hand, you know, it's an entity that has allowed people to communicate with each other and find each other in extraordinary ways. I think, I think we're in a moment in society where there is a full-bodied understanding and realization that, that these platforms have a tremendous amount more power than we understood um, and that we've given them a lot of information and a lot of power and more than we understood probably. But I also think that the reckoning for people, for the country is we also got a lot in exchange. And I think that it's, I think we're in the middle of a very important debate and as like all important debates, we should have had it five years ago, which is are we willing to, you know, give up the things we gave up and give them the power they have now in exchange for the benefits they got, that we got. And I don't think the countries, I think that's a very sober and compelling debate. And Facebook I don't know what the answer is. has hired in excess of a thousand people, they say, for fact-checking for the upcoming yeah. presidential election. Do either of you think that if hiring 10,000 people to fact-check could keep Facebook from being, quote, a disseminator of toxic information, as one critic said? There have also been mass killings because yeah. of toxic Facebook community. I mean, I have to push you a little bit on this because yeah, 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 it's no, more than cat videos, as you know. Yeah, no, no, you it's, it, no, I, 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 I'm not, I mean, I said myself, I don't, I try to stay away from, from the platforms because I do find them often toxic. I don't, I, I, I think it's a great step that they've hired fact checkers. I think it's a great step that there's an understanding. I mean, the, the most profound thing that's happened is that Facebook and some, particularly Facebook, has accepted <clears throat> that it's not that it that it has a an editing function, that it has an editing role. They denied that for a long time mm -hmm. for for a variety of reasons, including legal reasons. Probably, I think owning up to the fact that they do have a role in disseminating information is a big deal. It's important. I think they're learning that's a hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, I but I I, I think I, I'm not I'm. I mean, I'm not in the position. Maybe it's maybe my news chops keep me from be, being too okay. condemning. But a lot society has gotten a lot of good from the platforms, mm -hmm. and I think society has not stopped and said, "Wait a second, let's figure out what the balance is." And I think that, to me, is the largest story of the next couple of years. Is that debate? You get a lot of. I mean, you you get. You get a tremendous amount of value from being able to connect with your friends. You get a tremendous amount of value from being able to buy things through the platforms. And it's more convenient and it's easier. And you give something up to get that. And, and maybe the country needs to just have a debate about that balance. Okay. Jim, you have a view on that? <clears throat> yeah, just quickly. I, I think ultimately we've all got to take response. I know we're here to judge journalists, but I think the audience has some responsibility, and I think all of us have to be editors of our 
content now, and we have to be much more skeptical than we've ever been. And when we find things on Facebook, we need to trace them back to the original source. And there's a thing called the News Literacy Project, which mm -hmm. a guy named Alan Miller, who uh, Pulitzer Prize winner from the LA Times started, and he's now out all over the country in his project in middle schools and high schools teaching young people how to look at content and how to judge it, how to trace it back to the source to know what, what's verifiable and what's not. And I think we've all got to take some responsibility as uh, content consumers. Okay. Yeah. So this, this, this just gets us into a related issue of trust and mm -hmm. how much the public trusts what the press does. <clears throat> Now, you've all seen these polls that showing yeah. trust of the press has gone consistently down. Now, let me just say as a caveat, when you ask people what they think of the press, it could be everything from Alex Jones's Infowar to the New York Times. So it's a really broad yeah. thing. Um, that said, as I said, trust has never been lower. And again, a CGR report just this week said 60% of respondents think that sources pay Journalists, right. not journalists pay sources. <laughs> sources pay, which doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't, it doesn't. I don't know where that came from. But doesn't that tell you we have a problem? Yeah, we do. And we, the press <clears throat> just doesn't understand what everyone yeah. here does. Yeah, I, I think we. I, I, I would. I think there are two reasons. Um, one reason is large and societal. <clears throat> Your newspaper, when I when I first started in journalism, gave you provided ten things to you. Um, in like the, for much, much of the history of America. Of those 10 things, eight weren't controversial at all. It told you whether it, you needed an umbrella. There was no weather channel. It told you whether your local team won and how they won. It told you whether your high school team won. It told you, you know, whether the stock market was up or down. It let you know if you wanted to buy a truck, where to buy the truck. Those, were, those eight or nine things got taken away. By, by the change in, in technology, mm. leaving us with the stuff that pisses people off. <laughs> <laughs> coverage of politics, <laughs> coverage of government, all the benign stuff is gone. People hated their newspapers in 1959, I promise you, but they still needed to know whether or not to get an umbrella. Now here's the part that's our, <laughs> here's the part that's our fault. We, were, we allowed ourselves to become mysterious, we didn't connect to readers. We assumed they understood our language. We were a little arrogant. We said, trust us, we're the good guys. We didn't try to explain ourselves. We didn't tell them how many reporters we had out in the world. We didn't, we didn't help them understand we're human beings with flaws, strengths, and, and we're struggling to cover a complicated world. And I think the result is they saw us as elites in an ivory tower. And, and one of the things I've tried to do, it's the reason I agreed to do this documentary that was a little scary, where we led filmmakers <laughs> in the newsroom. I, I wanted them to see, where you, I wanted them to see that Maggie Haberman, who covers the White House, is not somebody, you know, lives in a penthouse, who's, right. that she's like a parent with kids. I wanted people to understand how hard we work, how, how, how much we spend hours and hours trying to get it right, and I wanted them to see the faces of reporters doing work. And I think we failed to do that for generations, and I honestly believe if we're extremely transparent, show people our work, explain to people what we do, tell them who we are, that we will win people over. I honestly believe that. Okay. 
Um, I'm going to start with Jim on this, so you, if you want to respond to that, you can still jump in at the very end. But I'm going to start with he, this. I'm glad to see he some, did it well. I'm glad to see some <laughs> audience questions on this because I had this on my list as well. Um, the New York Times is doing fantastically well right now by all by all measurements. The stock is up fourfold. The revenue is coming in. So is the Washington Post. But it's not the case for the rest of the press. We've lost one in four journalism jobs in this country in the last 10 years. It's, it's a shrinking, emasculated profession. And most of the markets are struggling. Even yeah. Seattle's struggling, Portland's struggling, <clears throat> San Francisco's struggling. Is there anything you've learned, um, or, Jim, in your coverage of the press, or Dean, in your position as an executive editor, that can apply to the local press? How can we ensure that we have a strong local media? I mean, this is the toughest thing at all. I think, you know, the President's had a huge impact on the press, but I, I think honestly, I last one of the last times I was in Seattle was to cover the PI closing down its print edition. And all over in Los Angeles, there's a most of the newspapers are owned by something called Digital First Media. And essentially that they share a lot of content. There aren't any reporters, there aren't boots on the ground. And I, I honestly wish I knew what the answer was. The model that the New York Times has is to have very, very premium level content that people can't get anywhere else. But as Dean explained, you can go and get the high school scores now, often from a local blogger. Uh, you can get, you can't get some things. They don't, they aren't going to go out and cover city councils. There are some things that are exclusive. Unfortunately, what I found in Los Angeles is people say they want that content, but will they pay for it? It's, it's a different thing for people to actually put money down. So if I had the answer, I'd you know, probably be in the business of, of trying to support local journalism. But it's very sad what's happened in, in a lot of cities, other than the New York Times and the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal that have these paywalls that are working. The reason they're working is because they have really premium content. They've got great reporters. And that's hard to replicate on a local level. And, and people are willing to settle for good enough. Right. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I think local journalism is in crisis, and I think most, most newspapers, many, I don't know about them, many local newspapers are going to disappear in the next five years. I do think there's, I, I, and, and a lot of that is from forces beyond their control. I do think there's one thing in our control. I, if I were running a local paper, this is going to be easy to say, because, but it's what drives me at the New York Times, I think you've got to figure out what you have and what you can do that nobody else can do. And I think you have to be brave in making that decision because that's a hard decision to make. And it's got to be mission-driven. It can't just be we can provide the best high school sports. Mm -hmm. I, think you, I think you have to figure that out and I think you have to throw every goddamn thing you have and making sure that you have stuff that people just have to read. It can't be 50 things the way it was in the print era. It's got to be like two or three things. And you got to make it so that only in the fill-in-the-blank newspaper. And I think as I travel around the country, I don't think people are really doing that. I think there's sort of short-sighted ownership. And I think people are trying to get the most clicks. So they're doing a little too much party, a little too much crime. That ain't going to make it. you got to figure out what can I do that nobody else can do. And you have to be relentless. And the part that's hard and most papers don't have and the reasons they won't make it is you have to have an owner who says, okay, I get it. 
I will fund those three things. I know I can't do everything we did in the print era when we were rolling in dough, but I think you have to be brutal and you have to wake up every day and say, you can only find this thing in my paper and you need it. Given that, do newspapers have a future, most of them? No, I don't. Um, unfortunately, I don't. I, I, think, I think first yeah, of That's a very sad thing to hear the executive editor of the New York Times say that newspapers probably don't have a future. I think a lot of them, I mean, some do, but a, a lot of them cut themselves too much. So that now we're in the moment when if you want to do what I just said, their staffs are too small. A lot of them cut themselves too much. They have short-sighted big chain owners who, to be blunt, are just trying to get the real estate, because newspapers had great real estate and great buildings, get the real estate, strip them down. Um, I think that it's, I, I don't, I don't, I don't I, now all that said, I do think some things will be created for affluent communities. I, there, somebody will figure out a way to cover, a, you know, San Francisco, um, I hope it's the Chronicle, but even if it's not, somebody will figure out a way, that's a rich community, I'm more worried about Newark, <clears throat> Detroit. I don't know what the model is for covering schools in Detroit. Somebody will cover Berkeley and Stanford. I don't know what the model is for covering Wayne State. It might be the philanthropy model, NPR. It might model. be. Yeah, exactly. But you have to have a city where there's a, I mean, not a lot of cities have billionaires. Right. You guys have a lot of them. <laughs> Probably a certain not a lot, But not a lot of cities no, then, okay. have Okay, so our time is, Diminishing, unfortunately. We've okay. had a couple questions from the audience, so I'm, I'm looking for uh, questions that are similarity. People are asking about global warming and racism, how you approach the coverage of this, and whether there's adequate coverage. I think the New York Times has really done an interesting job on multimedia coverage yeah. of both those issues. You've yeah. got a lot of film on this yeah. right now. We actually, yeah, but, but let me just say, a okay, lot of people think that, that readers don't care about these things, that they're, they're big picture things that are sort of boring, but you know they won't give you any clickbait. They do, they do, though. I mean, when we do these dramatic visual stories that show, and we've tried to tell the climate change story in particular as a, as a, as a visual story, when we do these dramatic stories, and when we write this unbelievable essay by Wesley Morris about why the Ma Michael Jackson, what means to him as a, you know, as a black man growing up in America, People, the, the, the audience for those things are huge. It's a myth that people don't want to read that stuff. If you tell that stuff right, people will read it. Jim, you, um, you're in the visual medium. Um, yeah. What do you think? Uh, could, uh, you do, could you do an exhaustive climate change story for NBC using, say, the fires in California? Yeah, I mean, you can. And actually, the last story that I wrote that just published a couple days ago was, I think, if I do say so, if Dean could maybe pat me on the back. Um, <laughs> it was uh, about a guy named Wally Broker who was at Columbia. Uh, one of the, he was essentially the guy who named global warming, uh, the first one to use that term in an academic paper, one of the foremost climate scientists in the world. He, almost on his deathbed, held a last conference call with a lot of his colleagues, also renowned scientists, and essentially told them kind of left him this dying message that they needed to start thinking about something called the Pinatubo strategy, which is essentially trying to recreate the effects of a volcano by pumping sulfur dioxide. This is where we are, folks. Uh, pumping sulfur dioxide as much as came out of the volcano at Mount Pinatubo in the 1990s. And I think it was, to me, <laughs> kind of an amazing story. The guy that almost invented climate science, he died about a week after he gave this talk 
in fact, got sort of out of his deathbed to tell his fellow scientists what he thought they should be looking at and how severe a situation we're in. So it was a human story about this guy that I think made climate change, which I think for a lot of people is sort of impenetrable and so scary you don't even want to hear about it. I think you can tell it in that way and you can tell it with visualizations like Dean's talking about and make people care about it by bringing it kind of right down to the ground level. Uh, question from the audience. Please define the battle plan to defeat, quote, fake news um, for newspapers and news consumers. Yeah. And just real quickly, the etymology of this term fake news just a few years ago was, well, Russian bots yeah. distributing yeah. fake things. Now it started out, our president used it for things he didn't like, and now I hear it from the local sheriff in eastern Washington. Yeah. He doesn't like a story, and he says it's fake news. It's yeah. become almost an all-purpose. Yeah. yeah. I think the answer is back to the trust answer. I think it's total, it's transparency. It's like, here's how we did the story. We never used to do that. If we did a big story, when I was an investigative reporter, we never told you how we did it. Now, here's how we did it, which is my way of saying, here's why you should believe us. Here's how many people we talked to. Here's even the documents we looked at. Here's the reporter. Here's everything. I think the more transparent we are, which seems easy and obvious, but boy, we sucked at it until like four or five years ago. The more transparent we are, I think people will believe us if they see how we do it and if we're relentless in showing them. Do you run into fake news, Jim, when you go out there and people say, oh, you're from fake news? Yeah, everybody uh, is concerned. I went to cover the big fires in California and... Uh, when I first said I was from NBC, which is one of the, I think, the four named sources of evil uh, from the White House, you know, the first look on their face, this was in a, a lot of the area burned and the campfire was white working class. And I had to kind of show them that, look, I really am concerned that you've lost your home. Uh, I think when I actually went and like helped them find, in one case, I helped some family members find each other, they, they looked at me like, oh, you're okay. Like, but I think they almost, when I first said NBC News, I, I felt like I had to overcome a lot. And I think the term fake news has become kind of meaningless because yeah, yeah. of its overuse. Uh, if we could, the sooner we can retire it, the better. Yeah. I don't think it really means much anymore. Well, that's why anymore. I talked about its etymology, how quickly it went from one thing yeah. to the other. Exactly, um, yeah. Question from a member of the audience. I was interested in this as well. Thank you, audience member, because I wasn't going to ask it. Um, <laughs> please have... Dean or Jim comment on the New Yorker article, this came out this week, yeah. on Fox News and the Trump administration being united as one voice. For those of you who didn't see it, this was a piece by Jane Mayer in the New Yorker, 11,000-word yeah. uh, piece, it's which basically story. detailed how uh, not only do Fox News hosts call in on policy meetings at the White House and then comment on how great the policy is, um, but the president ranks the uh, Fox News hosts from a scale of 1 to 10 on how yeah. sycophantic they are. Uh, Sean Hannity's a 10, and um, Steve Ducey's a 12. Um, they, the story also said that they had the story of Stormy Daniels, yeah. which arguably could have changed the election of Trump paying off Stormy Daniels. A Fox News reporter had figured it out, mm -hmm. yeah. and the story was killed, uh, according to the, to the New Yorker story, because Murdoch said, we want Trump to be elected. I think it was a really good piece. I think it's an important line of coverage. I think that the, I think the, and, and I think, we should all do more on it. I think, I think the role of Fox News, not all of Fox News, right? I mean, um, but the role of Fox and Friends and Hannity 
is I, 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 I imagine, picture Watergate if there had been a Fox News. Hmm. Picture Watergate, and if you go back and look at the history, Watergate lasted a, years. Watergate yeah. wasn't like break in and it's over. 14 months. Yeah, picture Watergate with a Sean Hannity and a, and a, and a Steve Ducey um, protecting the president. It is, it is a remarkable moment in, in American culture. And I think it is. I think that was a great story, and I think it's worthy of more examination. Okay, um, I want to get a question here for the attorneys in the in the audience. And I know there are some. Thank you for coming. Um, <laughs> or her, the uh, it was a, sort of an overlooked story, but Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice Clarence yeah. Thomas, recently criticized the landmark Times versus Sullivan ruling. Just for those of you who don't know. Everything we do in discussion of public figures flows from Times versus Sullivan. Yeah. It basically gives all of us, whether you work in the neighborhood blog or you're the New York Times, the right to write freely about public officials, elected officials, anyone who's a public figure. It says if you say something wrong about them and they sue you, they have to prove that you committed actual malice, which is defined yeah. as knowing at the time that you were uh, printing something false. Thomas says, uh, and the president has said this as well, that, that Times versus Sullivan should get a second look. Yeah. Uh, that, I, that would be frightening. Um, the naive, you know, the, the part of me that thinks, um, it's hard for me to imagine John Roberts, um, and it's hard for me to imagine, it's hard for me to imagine that that protection will go away. Maybe that's because it's such a scary thought. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that much of the greatest American journalism that has been produced since that ruling, um, whether it's Watergate, Harvey Weinstein, you know, or whatever, has been produced because by a press that knew that if it got it right and went into it and tried to understand that it was right, it had legal protections. And I think if that, if if the if we lost that protection, I think it would be it would be. A crisis. I mean, all of the, all whether it's the New York Times and the Washington Post, and 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 the network's coverage of Donald Trump and Russia, whether it's Harvey Weinstein, the thought that 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 kind of coverage would be jeopardized, I think, should make everybody nervous. Mm -hmm. And just so people, thank you. So people understand, this ruling applies to public. Officials, yes, public that's right. figures. That's right. If your average and all citizen, the people I mentioned are public right. figures. Right. So if your average citizen is libeled, that person has much more um, right. strength to go after a news organization. Which, which is yes. The court's ruling was they wanted there to be a vigorous, you know, debate back and forth. Um, right. So um, unfortunately, time is slipping through the hourglass here. But I want to ask um, both of you, um, and I'm going to start with you, Jim, because you are. You were once a press critic. Uh, go into your crystal ball and tell me what the New York Times will look like 10 years from now. <laughs> um, hmm. uh, <laughs> well, I won't be there. I mean, I think will Dean still be there? No. Dean will be forced into retirement at 65, yeah, I that's, think. That's ages, Dean. He's 12 years from that now. <laughs> right. <13. laughs> um, no, I think some of the things the New York Times is already doing uh, are, are amazing, like the Daily, the podcast from Michael Barbaro, if you haven't listened to that, um, check it out. Uh, I think we're gonna have a lot more of that. I think, I mean, as someone who has lived and reported, you can pity me, in Los Angeles most of my life, you spend a lot of time in your car in traffic, and to not have a vehicle 
for the LA Times, which they're really trying to work on now to talk to your audience when they're, you know, at the best time to reach them. Um, so I'll just say that's one huge thing that and us transitioning into these other media, I think is really important because I hope the print paper is still there. I still like getting my print New York Times on the weekend and the magazine and you kind of settle in and do your thing. Um, but I think it's hugely important that the New York Times and, and I think the audience for that is has a huge staff that runs it, right? But yeah. I, hope, I hope you're making money on that. Yeah, no, we are. But it's a great thing and I think all of us in the media, New York Times, and, and even some of these local papers that are having problems, if they can figure out a way to use new technology like that, we've, we've got to reach our audience because we're the only ones who are really seeking out the truth and, and trying to bring this to you. So, hmm. podcasting, for one, okay, for right. starters. It'll be dramatically different. It'll be, it, I, I do think that print will be around for a long time to come. The phone is going to be even better um, it's only going to get better. It's only going to get faster. It's only going to get more compelling, more visual. Um, it's going to get personalized. And I don't mean personalized in a way that scares people. I mean, it's going to be personalized in a way that if you, a huge chunk of our audience is now international. And if you live in London, your top story should be about Brexit. Um, and maybe your top story shouldn't be about the New York City mayor's race. I think it's going to be I, I, I think the next few years, hope, hope, hopefully the New York Times, but elsewhere I think it's going to be dramatic and compelling, and, and my fantasy is we are all over the place. You know, we have a television show, we have more podcasts, all of which will let us reach different kinds of audiences, and that's my fantasy for the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And you didn't look at it that way 20 years ago, sir. No. You never could have projected out to no, where we are now. No, no. I think the... the, the for me, as a leader of the newsroom, the, the, something clicked in me that, that I think has, helped, has at least helped me see all this stuff. It was, it was the understanding that not, that not everything we do, there's a difference between the things you do that are traditions and the things you do that are habits. And it's sometimes, as a leader, hard to tell the difference. Mm. Habits are things you do that you actually don't have to do. Mm -hmm. You just do them because everybody's always done it that way, right. right? Like the way you write a traditional newspaper story, much of that is just habit. And it was done mainly so that you could get the goddamn thing produced on time 40 mm -hmm. years ago. That's habit. Tradition, that you have a mission, that you have a moral obligation to society, those you hold on to. The habits, you should just like throw them up in the air. And I think under, it's, it's hard sometimes to tell a difference. I mean, you've all been in newsrooms and you fight to the death for the way you wrote a newspaper story. But you know what? That was because some guy, probably a guy, <laughs> 75 years ago wrote a story that way and everybody said, well, this looks good. That guy's still working at the back. I think he is. And I think understanding that, once you, once you accept that, that it just, the, the world opens up dramatically. You can just try all kinds of new stuff. On that wonderful note, I want to thank Dean thank and Jim. You. And thank you.
It was an honor to host Dean Baquet, Jim Rainey, and Tim Egan in March 2019 and to bring them back to the podcast today. Thank you to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community, and thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Salon Air is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, rate and review us five stars so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air.